Hi, you're listening to Eric Vary, and I hope you remember me from Enterprise, Deep Space Nine, and Next Generation. And you are listening to Trek Untold. Welcome to Trek Untold, the podcast that goes beyond the stars. I'm your host, Matthew Kaplowitz. There are actors out there whose faces we've seen in a billion things, but so often, we never learn their names. As you all know by now, Trek Untold is about putting a name to the face. And today, we have one of those guests who I guarantee you've seen time and time again, and their identity deserves to be revealed and appreciated. Eric Avari has been seen in television and film since the mid-80s, and continues to work today. He's had appearances in Murphy Brown, L.A. Law, Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, Cheers, Seinfeld, NYPD Blue, Babylon 5, The X-Files, Daredevil, Castle, The Mentalist, and Warehouse 13, just to name a small handful. However, you might remember Eric best for his roles in Encino Man, Mr. Deeds, The Mummy, and Stargate, where he portrayed a character who returned from the film into the TV series Stargate SG-1. His resume boasts a whopping 150 credits, and we only scratched the surface of his career with our discussion today. As for Star Trek, however, Mr. Avari appeared first in Star Trek The Next Generation as a Klingon named Bijik in the first part of the two-parter from Season 5 back in 1991, Unification. He returned a few years later in 1995 to Deep Space Nine in their third season as a Bajoran priest named Vedic Yarka in the episode titled Destiny. Eric made one final appearance in the Star Trek franchise in 2001, appearing in the first season episode of Enterprise titled Terra Nova, where he played an interesting character named Jamin, but you'll hear all about that in a little bit. Eric is a real actor's actor with an inspiring success story and a great philosophy on performing. It was a true honor for me to speak with Eric for this episode, and I hope after hearing our show today, you'll look at him a lot differently the next time he shows up on your screen. Before we jump into our interview, I want to remind everyone to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Trek Untold. And that's all one word, no spaces. You can also support this show by visiting patreon.com slash trekuntold. If you want to check out some of our merch and put Trek Untold on a shirt, hoodie, mug, sticker, or something else, head on over to teespring.com slash stores slash trekuntold to proudly display how much you like this podcast. And if you do happen to get some Trek Untold merch, go ahead and tag us on social media and let us know you got it. We'd love to see it. But most of all, please make sure to subscribe to this podcast and to leave a rating and a review. There is a lot of Star Trek podcasts out there, as I'm sure you already know, and leaving ratings and reviews helps people find us when they're searching for these types of shows. If you're already following us or offering your support in whatever way you can, be it a follow, review, monetarily, or even just listening today, thank you for the help. There's a family of Star Trek podcasts out there, and we appreciate you joining us here each and every week on the show. I'd also like to make a quick shout out to our friends at Triple Fiction Productions, who make some great 3D printed Star Trek inspired products for toys and people. But you'll hear more about them a little bit later on in the show. Now, without further ado, let's beam up this week's guest. Computer, access interview file. Affirmative. Initiating program. Welcome back to Trek Untold, and now joining me on the other side of the line, we've got a face you've seen in 150 different shows and movies, 
three of which happen to be Star Trek, but you may also recognize him from The Mummy, Stargate, Mr. Deeds, Days of Our Lives, Dragnet, and so many more, and a bunch of which we're going to talk about today. He's also a fellow lactose intolerant, but lucky for us in Star Trek times, the milk doesn't come from cows anyway. That man is Mr. Eric Avari. Eric, how are you today? Good morning, Matthew. I'm doing excellently well, thank you. How about yourself? I'm doing great. It's so great to be able to talk to you. Uh, you know, I've seen your face in so many things. Again, it's like getting to do this show. I get to talk to all these folks whose face I've seen, but you don't really get to hear much from. So I'm really excited to hear all about your stories and get some great insight from you on what you do. Looking forward to it. So I'd like to start with the first question I ask all my guests here, and uh, that is, what is your earliest memory of Star Trek? <laughs> you know, um, when I first came to America... I was uh, I was going to college in the, at the College of Charleston, Charleston, South Carolina, and uh, I had a work study program and all this stuff, and, and uh, I had a pretty heavy workload in spite of carrying uh, I think it was eighteen credits. Anyway, um, my my jobs varied from you know cleaning out. Uh, student center, garbage cans and things like that, the toilets and whatever, uh, and also the desk, which was great for getting my work done. But every day, every weekday, at 3 o'clock, they put me in the audiovisual room, <laughs> which is basically a bunch of, you know, uh, headphones, and you could listen to music or watch TV. And 3 o'clock was when Star Trek came on. So every day I would come in and watch Star Trek religiously while I sat there. And it was the <laughs> best part of my day. <laughs> so that's my earliest memory of Star Trek, really. Oh, that's a great memory to have. Now, you were born in Darjeeling, India, and your family actually has a lineage in cinema. So I'd love to, if you could tell us a little bit about your family, who they were growing up as a kid in India, and what young Eric wanted to be back then when he grew up. Well, um, starting with actually, it was uh, on both sides. Both my my mother's side of the family, they were the long established uh, filmmakers, uh, theater um, producers. In fact, my great grandfather was the first to put Indian uh, to put women on uh, the Indian stage. Oh wow! Uh, prior to that, it was all you know, like in Shakespeare's time, they were all pants rolls, young boys played those roles uh, but he he uh, um so that's i was and i didn't learn that till much later actually i was in new york and i was uh, at the uh, browsing through doing some research in the library and uh, lincoln center library which is such a beautiful place uh, i spent hours and hours there so and, and i happened to come across a, a book on bengali uh, theater in bengal and uh, this sort of leaf through it, and that was my uh, great grandfather. Um, so that was quite revealing. Um, and then, and then also on my father's side, my uh, my grandfather, my dad's dad, he was a self-made man. Um, started, left home at sixteen, uh, rode across India. Apparently, so with legend has it, on horseback. <laughs> Uh, um, I'm sure he took advantage of trains quite a bit. Anyway, he um, he started movie theaters as well. So it was, you know, movies were in my blood uh, at a very early age. And Wednesdays and Saturdays, we were allowed to go 
um, those were also coincidentally the most the days that I was most popular in, at school because everyone wanted a free ticket. You know? <laughs> <laughs> um, if you've ever seen Cinema Paradiso, that is the story of Darjeeling and the movie theaters in Darjeeling. I mean, the whole town gravitated toward the... There were two cinema halls, and my grandfather owned both of them, sadly. Um, and uh, it, it was, you know, the... the, the the meeting place of the town and, and it was everyone looked forward to the change in the film. And it was um, uh, a, a grand old time that is now sadly gone with the advent of uh, videos. And uh, now of course, you know, DVDs and computers and everything else. Um, but the old fashioned movie theater experience seems to have, seems to have gone by the wayside. You know, I always I knew what I what I was not good at, which was math and you know science. I, I, that that just didn't appeal to me. But um, I I did very much enjoy literature, um, history, and there were the, the whole you know stories and characters. And I started to really gravitate towards the humanities. Uh, but I thought I would, I, mean, I would love to have been an actor, but growing up in, in India, wanting to be uh, an English-speaking actor and doing Shakespeare, there was no career there at all. Um, I didn't have any role models to emulate or anything like that. And I also, at that idealistic age, felt that acting was something way too frivolous. And I needed to put my efforts um, into something that's that was more meaningful. Anyway, so I, you know, sort of thought about becoming a criminal lawyer or you know joining the foreign service and becoming a diplomat or whatever. And it w I was in ninth grade. Uh, Father McGuire was going on about something that was, um, was daydreaming and, uh, and all of a sudden he said something that caught my attention and it was, he said, artists, and he was talking about painters, um, poets, um, uh, actors, so on. Um, act and artists traditionally hold up a mirror to society. And typically, when they have failed to do that, that society has crumbled. Mm. And he went on to, to you know, to elucidate that point with the Greeks and the Romans, and you know, and on and on and on. And we see the correlation between uh, art and its culture and its heritage, and 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 how it it plays in today's society and what's is it the um, dog wagging the tail you know uh, does life imitate art does art imitate life if all these questions started to to come up and and uh, I started to see a real value to wanting to become an actor and at that point I said I don't know how I'm gonna do it but that is what I want to do. So I, I, it was a, a pretty 
seminal moment in my life. Yeah, that's a pretty, pretty huge uh, epiphany moment, I guess you'd say. Mm -hmm. So when did your family come to America? Um, no, um, my, uh, I came to America. Okay, you just came by yourself. Okay. Yep, yep. I came on a, a, a scholarship. Yep. I was a literature major in, uh, in India. I got my BA there. Uh, it was basically marking time and bank vamping. It was very, very difficult in those days for us from India to come out to the U.S. because we, uh, our foreign exchange, well, we just didn't have it. You know, India mm -hmm. was a burgeoning country and just didn't have the foreign exchange. And uh, they said, you know, you're welcome to go, but <laughs> the Indian rupee is valueless uh, outside of India. So good luck. <laughs> and what a lot of people did was, you know, they were, under, you know, you bought dollars in the black market and all that stuff. But um, my dad, uh, with his British Army background, was not having any of that. So, uh, you know, I didn't even broach the subject. I knew where, where that would go in a hurry. So I just had to wait for something to happen. I wasn't sure how or what, but... Um, you know, uh, a chance meeting uh, um, and uh, in following up on it. Uh, I must say my uh, educators were extremely supportive. You know, they went out of their way to plead my case. And, um, and being Jesuits, I guess they had a way of, you know, really making that point. So uh, here I am. You know, so you came to New York City, right? And uh, from there you got eventually. No, Charleston, no, South Carolina first. Oh, you went to South Carolina first. Okay, so yeah, so from so from India to and, South Carolina, and, that's got to be a culture shock. That absolutely was. I was coming to be an actor, and I remember flying across from London to uh, to, to LaGuardia, uh, and uh, the international flight showed movies, and uh, they showed WWW Dixie and the Dance Kings, I believe. <laughs> and it was, you know, it was a very heavy southern dialect. And I, if I caught every third word, I was lucky. And, and I started <laughs> to go into a panic attack. I thought, oh, my God, I'm, I'm coming to America to be an actor. And I don't even speak the language. <laughs> you know? I can't understand what anyone's saying. <laughs> uh it was, uh, and I, 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 I'll go on because it, it, it didn't stop there. Um, I had a real harrowing trip. I flew into LaGuardia. I forget whether it was Eastern or Delta, one of those airlines that I was booked on for the remainder of the, the last leg of my journey, um, uh, was on strike. And so they put me on to the other flight. Oh, right. I, um, let, me, let me take this back. I wasn't flying into LaGuardia. I was flying to JFK, and I had to transfer to LaGuardia because Eastern or Delta was on strike, and the other one was at LaGuardia. So they told me this at the last minute, and, uh, and they said, you better hurry because you don't have a lot of time. And I said, well, you know, uh, I was, anyway, <laughs> I was trying to make a case for them to transport me over. I didn't know where I was going or how I was going to get in there. But they were like, good luck. You know, you've got 20 <laughs> minutes to get there. And sure enough, I missed the flight. So I'm sitting at the LaGuardia airport for uh, five 
hours, I think it was, after flying for more than, you know, 24. Um, and with the layover in London and all that stuff. So I was dog tired. And, uh, and I got mugged in the bathroom. Oh. Well, yes. yes. Uh, so the little money that I had, which was $35, I gave over to the guy in the, in the men's room at LaGuardia Airport. That's not a good way to start things off in New York. Not a good way to start at all. Not a good way. So anyway, I finally made it to LaGuardia. The next day, uh, to, to, sorry, in Charleston, and I get to my dorm at, at 1.30 in the morning, whatever. I, I wake up the next day, and, and I'm guided to the student center to get breakfast. And as I'm walking across the parking lot, there's a gentleman uh, saying something, and, and, and it was just the two of us in this wide-open parking lot. And he was waving his hand at me and, and, and saying something. And I, he was wearing a jacket. Now, where I grew up, if you wore a jacket, you, it was a sign of respectability, you know, not something to be afraid of or anything like that. And um, I stood my ground and I was trying to understand what he was saying. And he was saying something like, hey, quoi? Let me quoi? <laughs> and I thought, uh, he's speaking French. That's right. This is like, yeah, there was that French influence, and then New Orleans, and maybe Charleston as well. And I'm trying to figure this out, and, and I'm speaking a little French that I knew to say I don't know how to speak French. <laughs> <laughs> and he had his hand out, and I and I shook it. See, and, and he shook his hand loose, and he yelled. And he says, "Lend me a quarter." <laughs> Welcome uh, to America. So, uh, here I was, you know, with with dreams of Broadway, and <laughs> severely stepped on with, with the understanding that I I was not speaking the same language at all. <laughs> <laughs> well, you eventually did make it to Broadway. You made it to New York, and you did some off Broadway work as well. Uh, you were in productions of A Midsummer Night's Dream, uh, The King and I. Uh, but I wanted to ask you specifically about working on a show called uh, Tis a Pity She's a Whore at the Public Theater, and you, and you were there with Val Kilmer, right? Yes, I was. Yes, I was. What do you yeah. remember about uh, working with Val Kilmer back then? When, when was this? It, uh, that was 1992, I believe. Okay. I'd already moved. i just moved to L.A., and I came back to do that show, because we'd actually done it. Um, I'd worked with the director, Joanne Acolytus, on a number of shows. She was, is, I'm sorry, but um, she's um, just a wonderful, wonderful woman. Started uh, Mabel Minds, which is this experimental avant-garde theater in New York City back in the 60s. You know, so I mean, this is someone who had started this movement and just, oh, opened my eyes to theater. And I, I, I can't say enough about her. But uh, nevertheless, um, she was remounting this. We'd done it at the Goodman in, in Chicago. And it just received great accolades and reviews. So we were remounting it in New York with uh, Triple Horn, uh, Jared Harris, uh, Wendell Pierce, 
I could go on and on. Rocco Sisto. I mean, just just this wonderful, wonderful cast, and um, it, it, it was a, just I and I shared a dressing room with Val. Ah, that must be interesting. It was just a supremely talented, such a you know gifted, gifted actor, and and, and I always felt like. I think a lot of it was because, and, and this isn't just me, you know, my sort of um, uneducated opinion here, but I felt like he he had a tortured soul, and and that's where he got a lot of his that wealth of emotionality. Um, and and was able to tap that emotion, you know. Um, I'm getting a little technical here, but I, I I just found him a fascinating actor to watch and to. You can't really emulate someone like that because it, it's so unique and it's so what what he's bringing to the stage is very pure, you know. And to try to emulate that, I I feel would just to just be you know, uh, pie in the sky. And you, you, you can emulate someone who's doing a dance, <laughs> you know, maybe, uh, or singing a song if you're that talented. But but to to make the choices and, and to have that wealth of, of emotionality I, is the only word I can come up with at this stage. Mm, yeah. Yeah, very versatile really actor. Versatile and deep. Yeah. 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 Great, great experience. And uh, I I remember it fondly. So I want to actually go back in time for a second and talk about one of your earliest films. Uh, It might might, might actually have been uh, maybe your first film in America, actually. It's from 1984. And uh, it's this very bizarre and I think almost forgotten movie now called Nothing Lasts Forever. And uh, that starred, starred Zach Galligan. Bill Murray, Imogene Coca, Dan Aykroyd, Eddie Fisher, and Lauren Tom. Uh, you were in that as Toulouse-Lautrec. And mind you, this is also yeah. the same year that Gremlins came out with Zach. So, I mean, I guess it's easy to see why that one got buried in time versus Gremlins getting as big as it was. Yeah. But, uh, you know, it's a real weird film. What, what can you tell us about working on that film? It is. And, and, and actually, I mean, I had a, 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 a tiny, tiny part in that. And it was uh, essentially a, more of a sight gag than anything else. Uh, but it was so fun to do because, uh, you know, while I did, I did look like him, especially with those glasses and the hat. Uh, but now what do we do about the height? You know, and, and that <laughs> with this idea of, well, I did, did already thought it through doing an <clears throat> over, oversized portfolio. And I basically held it up sort of in front of me and, and just, and scooched down, you know, so, so it looked like I was four foot three or whatever it was, you know. Um, and uh, now it, 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 it was a, a day on the set, and uh, for a theater actor, it was uh, just, you know, uh, stars in my eyes and just such, a, such an exciting experience, you know. Yeah, unfortunately, no one's going to really be able to easily see it now because it's kind of one of those. Uh films out. I don't even think it yeah. got released, did it? Did that yeah, even get right. released? I heard there was like some issues with like test screenings or it didn't test very well and it was kind of shelved for a bit. No, I, I never I never saw it. No, no, that's not true. I did 
I did see a portion of it. Well, why is that? And how was that? I forget now. That's I probably forget. more than most of us have seen. Yeah. Uh, I, 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 I'd like to dig it up, actually. If you ever find it, do let me know. I, I'd love to check some of that out, too, because yeah, I can't find well. anything of it. I just I looked it up, I found a trailer, and I was like, this is crazy. i got to ask Eric about this. Maybe that's what I saw. Maybe that's what I saw. I, I can't remember. I can't remember. <laughs> so you've appeared in plenty of other TV shows as well, though, uh, that did make it to air, unlike that film. You've uh, been in things like Martin, Cheers, Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, Wings, Murphy Brown, Ellie Law, Seinfeld. I can go on and on here, because you've been in tons of things. Um many of which didn't involve aliens or starships. We'll save that for a little bit. But uh, the one show I want to ask you about, which is one of my favorites to ask about on Trek Untold, is Murder, She Wrote. And uh, you did an episode uh-huh. in 96 called Mrs. Parker's Revenge, which also had Greg yeah. Henry, uh, well-known voiceover performer Mary Elizabeth McGlynn, Time Winters, and another fellow Trek alumni, Tony Todd, in it. Uh, what can you tell us about that show? And you know, I always love to hear any good Angela Lansbury stories you got. So, uh, yeah, what do you remember about that? Yeah. Well, it, it, it's funny uh, because uh, Tony Todd, I've, I've got to know, uh, and he went to school that my uh, ex-wife went to uh, went to UConn, so known about him and met him on, on conventions and everything else. Uh, I didn't know him at the time. Time Winters and I knew each other. In fact, we did a play and we did a part-time, we worked at a part-time telephone sales job together in New York. So there was that connection. But Angela Lansbury, uh, and I had done a reading with her in in New York uh, years ago. It was for Hal Prince, and it was readings of Madame Rosa. And he wanted to, he was interested in, in mounting it, and Angela uh, came in and read. Um, and so I didn't really get to hang out with her at all, you know, but uh, we, uh, we, we, we were on the, in the same rooms, <laughs> reading from the same script together. Uh, and then uh, when I did the ship, um, she, she was she couldn't have been more gracious. She's just such she's such a charming was yeah, charming, gracious woman. And I remember coming back and telling people, uh, you know, I tell you, the bigger they are, you know, the 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 more real they get. And I remember commenting on that and I was so impressed that there were just no airs. And, and she was genuinely, when she asked, how are you? She, she really wanted to know, you know, mm. um, yeah, yeah, fun. Um, I, I, I've, I've been very, very fortunate to work with, you know, some of those iconic figures uh, for me, at least, you know, yeah, you really have. I mean, just looking at the the breadth of your career so far is so many great folks you've worked with. Uh, and yeah, you've been some such big, big blockbusters, too. You were in Independence Day. You were in the Planet of the Apes reboot that Tim Burton made. Uh, the Mummy with Brendan Fraser. Yeah. 13th Warrior with Antonio Banderas. I can keep rattling these things off, but I'm not going to or will be here all day. But uh, this does kind of lead me into asking you about Stargate, uh, where you played uh, Kasif, uh, whose name I always say wrong. So hopefully I said it OK there. <laughs> Kasuf, okay, Kasuf. yeah. I, I, I had a note for myself. I was like, it's, it said like ketchup, but I didn't read that note. Um, so you, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you were Kasuf, and uh, that was a pretty big moment for your career as well. Uh, and you got to work with Side by Side with Kurt Russell and James Spader. It's a gorgeous looking film. Yeah, what can yeah. you tell us about that film? Um, now, there again, I had worked with James on an independent movie, uh, I think a, couple, a year or so prior to that. Um, 
And it was a, a completely different movie, and he was playing a completely different role, and I, as was I. Uh, anyway, we uh, when I was when my manager showed me the script and said, "Look, they, they are interested in you for this role," and I read it, and and they said, you know, one of them was they, they described him as an eighty-year-old, um, the elder, and he essentially had I think it was basically one scripted line at the end of the day and and you know and I thought no man I you know I'm I've been doing a lot of TV I've been doing some films I'm not going to do a one line part you know as an 80 year old which you know uh, I was uh, gosh what was that I, I was in my 40s um and uh, my manager kind of talked me into it. He said, "Look, no, they they really want they're really more interested in in you know improv, seeing what you can do with this whole you know language issue and, and all that." Um, and the more I started to think about that and, and the challenge, and then I thought about um, you know aging up as well. That that that's a good exercise and. I thought, yeah, you know, um, if if I get it, I'll, I'll, I would have my hands, I would have enough to get my teeth into it, you know. And I went out and I auditioned for it and uh, had a, a great time. It, 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 the audition, they were seeing everyone in town for, you know, it was a big cast. And I remember waiting for a very long time and finally... They was running so far behind that basically were eating, uh, not Dean and Roland, but the the poor reader. <laughs> he was trying to get his lunch in between, you know, <laughs> all, all the the people he had to read with. Oh, wow. So it was a perfect segue for me to do the candy bar scene without even introducing myself. You know, <laughs> I walked in. I didn't say hello. I didn't do anything, and I just kind of. I, it just happened that way, you know, that, that <laughs> I, I noticed. And uh, then I thought, well, let's go with this. <laughs> you know? So we kind we of played out that candy bar scene right off the bat. And, and Dean and Roland were just howling. And what was great, what made it easier for me was uh, I, I spoke in Nepali. Which oh. I don't speak very well, but I didn't care because they they weren't going to understand it anyway. But <laughs> I knew what I was trying to say, so so that seemed that that made it much easier for for the scene to to work, you know. Because now you've got that language barrier and and uh, all of that stuff. So and uh, goodness, I th- that that was <laughs> the turning point of my. Uh, Hollywood career, really. And, and it didn't come right away. It, it took a while. Because when the film was released, uh, I, they, it was not really embraced by the casting community, per se. You know, it didn't give me a notch up like I would have, for example, another movie I did before starting to get the. Uh, is the beast you know, mm-hmm. in, in a, it's called the beast of war 
uh, that was going to be our platoon. It was, it's an anti-war film. It, it was um, based on, uh, actually adapted from the play by Bill Master Simone. And, um, hold on, sorry. Um, it got caught up in studio politics. The head of the studio, uh, Putnam, got fired just a week before we wrapped, and the movie completely went by the wayside. But that one, had it actually been uh, pushed, uh, you know, um, as, as it should have been, uh, and given a proper release, I think that would have given my career a, a, an immediate jump, you know. Um, anyway, uh, we never know, right? Mm. Um, but, uh, yeah, it was, it was only after, I think, Independence Day that, you know, once Independence Day came out and the Hollywood community at that point knew Dean and Roland were a force to be reckoned with. I mean, you know, here they were with two blockbusters back to back, you know, and on a roll, they were, you know, right out the gate. I mean, they were, um, and, and that's when, you know, it, it, it did pick up for, for us, uh, for us, the underlings. Yeah, I want to ask about this one scene in particular that I remember from the film, uh, and that's towards the end, where it's basically you're leading uh, all the people of Abydos down this giant sandy slope towards all the bad guys. It's like this amazing scene, and to me it's extra amazing because you've got an actual horde of real human extras charging down a hill with you. It, it kind of reminded me a lot of like the old Hollywood epics, like the biblical epics, the Roman Empire epics. Um, which today would yeah. be, you know, all CG characters. It wouldn't be really a single human besides yourself. But back then, it had to be actual humans all choreographed going down this hill at once doing this crazy big scene. What do you remember about that that scene being filmed? Was that, like, very chaotic? I remember it vividly, almost. Yeah. Uh, it, 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 first of all, just to set it up, you know, uh, the heat. It, my first week... Um, on the set when we were shooting in Yuma, Arizona. And uh, it was 130, 36, you know, it, people were passing out, the sand, people were getting sick. But in spite of all of that, the, the, and I think perhaps because the conditions were so tough those first eight weeks that we were shooting in Yuma, uh, that we really... He banded together, you know, we, we had no option. And and both Dean and, and Roland and, and the entire, you know, the camera department, everyone kept a sense of humor and, and it was a lot of fun, you know? Um, there was a lot of laughing on the set. You know? mm. <laughs> it came away with a mouthful of sand, but that was okay. You know? <laughs> uh, anyway, to, uh, and, and I remember the first my my first uh, day on the set, and I get the uh, my call sheet it was a huge day. This is not the day in, in question, but uh, just to give you an example of what what was called for was you know fifteen principles. Uh, this is we're talking Kurt Russell, James Spader, uh, you know, on and on and on. Uh, fifteen elders, thirty five sheep herders. Um, 150 extras, 
and 35 dune sweepers. Huh. <laughs> it's like, what are the dune sweepers? I don't remember <laughs> them in the script, you know? And I realized between takes, they had to sweep the dunes and make them pristine with the, with the uh, footsteps, you know, because you, you couldn't have foot-trodden dunes <laughs> over yep. and over So, So that was the big issue on that particular scene, right, for this. And like you say, we had 1,500 extras. Oh, my gosh. And many that's, of them, that's insane. Uh, yeah, and many of them were Spanish-speaking. So we had, uh, oh, there were six cameras set up, because not only 1,500 extras, uh, there were explosions going to happen, all that. So the, it, we were sent up to the top of the hill, and um, while the, the dunes were charged with the uh, with the explosives then the, then swept and the cameras were to get ready and so, so all of this took a long time you know and it was hot and there was no shade up there and i could tell people were flagging you know and then we'll get there and i thought oh man this is the big scene you know we, we, we've got to we've just got to come down there you know with all pistons firing, you know, it can't be looking like we've been sitting out in the sun all day and tired. And, <laughs> you know. and so I, and I, and I had like a 15 yard lead on all of them so that I could do that little bit and then they come up and, you know, uh, so, uh, I started doing a little soft shoe routine and a striptease, and, you know, <laughs> just keeping uh, keeping them sort of entertained, and, and that worked for about five minutes. And finally, I said, you know, I used to be a sprinter in, in back in the day. So I, could, I knew I could run pretty fast. Uh, and I said, all right, I got $5 to anyone here who beats me to the cameras. <laughs> and it, that was like, so we're talking, right, back in the day when $5 was, well, you, you might you might get dinner somewhere with $5, yeah. you know, <laughs> and people perked up, and anyway, we finally get to that moment, and all the ADs uh, had told us to run toward the camera, and then, you know, now there were six cameras. I knew which camera I was supposed to be running toward. But apparently, a lot of the extras didn't. So when we started that charge, right, and people started to come down up over the hill and start to run down, and slowly they started to peel away as if they were just like deserting costumes <laughs> because they were going to you know different cameras and what. What they should have been told was go to this particular camera. Uh -huh. And they heard camera, saw a camera, and we just went to that one, you know? <laughs> so the director was yelling, cut, 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 before the explosives went off, because that would have taken another, you know, however many hours to reset that. Right? So, but obviously, we couldn't, the, the hordes running down the, the, the dunes couldn't hear, cut a very, very, very long story short. I, I popped my hamstring and 
came down and was black and blue and, and someone went running to the devil and said, uh, Eric popped his hamstring. You know, like, it was a big thing. Without missing a beat, he goes, good, he'll run slower next time. <laughs> <laughs> because he was freaking out. He was like, you're supposed to be 80 years old. You're flying down that dude like a 30-year-old. You know? And so, in fact, if you, if you slow it down, you will see actually uh, ace bandage at, at one point my uh, tunic sort of flies up a little bit and you see the ace bandage around my my thigh. <laughs> well, I'm, and, I'm and, look and the hobble was for real. <laughs> yeah, it was, uh, I, like you say, I, I remember that. It, it was amazing to have 1,500 people just screaming behind you, you know, and you're amped up and, man, it's <laughs> Uh, yeah, I don't know how you do that with CG. No, you, you know? don't anymore, that's for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you got to continue playing uh, your character in Stargate SG-1 also. You did three episodes there, and you got to work with uh, the new crew members of SG-1, Richard Dean Anderson, Amanda Tapping, Michael Shanks, and Christopher Judge, a real stellar group of actors. Uh, how did you enjoy bringing yeah, the character back yeah. in SG-1? Did you think you were going to even come back? Well, uh, you know, what my um, I was shooting The Mummy at the time. Right. And that's a, a whole other story for another time um, with with that role. Uh, but it turned out I had, um, had I played the role I was originally slated to play in The Mummy, I would not have been able to do this. But at the very last minute, I replaced Omar Sharif, who was supposed to play my role. And uh, so then my schedule changed. I, I was up. Uh, at the top and it, it was sort of bookended on the shoot. So I had this big gap in the middle. And while I was in um, Marrakesh, I get this emails from my manager saying, hey, would you be interested? They're looking for an Eric Avari type. <laughs> I said, I think I'm still an Eric Avari type. So yeah. <laughs> uh, and it was so fun. I, I, I love, like you said, great group of people. You know, uh, and Don Davis also in that group. Another, uh, rest in peace, my friend. Just a great, uh, warm, welcoming group. And, and, uh, and Michael was so close to James. It, it was kind of freaky, you know, mm. uh, in, in quality and type and even in look, you know, uh, um, anyway, um, I guess uh, I, I, it, it just felt very, very uh, a very natural transition into it. The one thing that I did kind of stumble with was the dialect, because now all of a sudden I'm speaking English. Mm, yep. Um, and I, you know, for practical purposes, because I, I can see where trying to do that in a series, it would just be really, really taxing. On writers, performers, everyone, you know. Um, so they decided to go with English. And, and I thought, okay, well, if I've learned English, presumably from my son-in-law, who then I would emulate or try to emulate his accent, right? <laughs> you know? Because that's the only thing that I'm, you know, that's how you get an accent. Mm. Obviously, there's, there's certain... Uh, constant shifts and changes that, that would come easier for some people or 
more difficult for others. But typically, that would kind of be the dialect, you know. So it was, uh, I don't know, uh, bucking tradition a little bit there, you know, because somehow typically you would go with a generic Middle Eastern accent. But to me, that that's an issue too. You know, it's like what it's like saying, yeah, just do a generic American accent or yeah, whatever. You know, it's, yeah, there's it's, it's still traces of whatever. Yeah. <laughs> so that 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 was to me was the only um, thing that didn't feel absolutely like a continuation of the past. You know. Hmm. Trek Untold will return momentarily. Trek Untold is brought to you by Triple Fiction Productions. If you're a Star Trek cosplayer looking for props or toy collector looking to spice up your shelves, Triple Fiction Productions has you covered. Triple Fiction Productions produces affordable and unique 3D printed Trek inspired products from the original series, Next Generation, Deep Space Nine, Voyager, Enterprise, and the movies. You can expect the same amount of care and attention to detail in any of the items in their catalog, whether it's a prop replica for use in a fan film, or part of a cosplay, or accessories and playsets for figures from Playmates, Migos, or Diamond Select. Own your very own tricorder or phaser rifle with working lights, the bridge of the Enterprise E for your Playmates figures, or any other item from countless species and ships from the Star Trek universe. All products are 3D printed in the USA and are constantly evolving and improving based on fan feedback. To learn more about their products, visit them at triple-fictionproductions.net or on Facebook at facebook.com slash triplefictionproductions. Triple Fiction Productions, taking Star Trek where no 3D printer has gone before. If you find yourself listening to your favorite podcast and wondering what microphone they use or how they do their editing, or if you watch a YouTube video and you wonder what camera is that, or going one step further, if you're watching Twitch and you're wondering how your favorite Twitch streamer built their rig and if you can do the same, then Toys and Tech of the Trade is for you. Toys and Tech of the Trade is an interview series where we sit down with content creators, entrepreneurs, and discuss the gadgets and gear that they use to create their content and run their businesses. We use toys in a broad sense, meaning the stuff that just puts a smile on your face, whether it's action figures to something a little bit more complex like musical instruments, cars. You'd be surprised what people consider their toys. Toys and Tech of the Trade can be found on all major podcast providers, including iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, and of course, Spotify. Feel free to visit us at RageWorksNetwork.com to check us out. We now return to Trek Untold. So Eric, let us now come to your first ever Star Trek appearance, and that was in the Next Generation 2-parter. You were in the first part of this one, and that's Unification from Season 5. And you played Bajik, who was a Klingon who the Enterprise contacts for some help to get across the neutral zone. Yeah. So can you tell us uh, how you got cast for this role? Uh, were you aware that you were going to be playing a Klingon? When I came to Hollywood, I thought I could see myself fitting into that, you know, the, the sci-fi genre. Heavy makeup. I know that they, they typically like uh, classically trained actors, you know, so I felt like that's going to be my foot in the door. Um, and uh, I didn't see myself playing 
you know, back then, there, there was no Indian community per se, other than perhaps you're a 7 Eleven guy, you know, and they were actually from Bangladesh, but <laughs> that's besides the point. Um, I did see myself going in, and, and uh, Jenny Lowry, the casting director, took a shine to me, and she would call me in for multiple shows and different, different roles, and uh, and I, I kept running into issue after issue. One was, uh, well, there was one I went out for uh, that required the full contact lens thing. And uh, it was for uh, an 18-episode uh, role. And I just could not get, and I told them up front, I said, look, I don't wear contact. I am squeamish about my eyes, so I'm really not... You know, I've got to let you know up front that uh, I'm, I may not be able to do this. And so I'll go ahead and read. And anyway, and I, I read and said, and they said, go down. Hair and makeup is waiting for you. And, and they'll try to put it in. Let's see how that goes. And I said, oh, they're very gentle. And they were. They were very gentle. But I was just way too squeamish. And the, the lens was so, you know, the, the full lens, hard lenses. And even when... When I finally did get it in, one, I basically couldn't even open my eye without, without just screaming tears. And, you know, um, so I gave it my all, but I, I just couldn't do it. Um, so then they finally called me back for this, and I, and I got it, and I was thrilled because I was finally going to meet the, this cast and all this stuff, you know. And I get there, uh, um, was in the makeup chair for three and a half hours. Mm. And, uh, and they said, uh, okay, they're ready for you on set. And I was like, great. Oh, and the fun thing was they didn't have boots my size, but apparently I was the shortest Klingon they'd ever hired. <laughs> 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 like size 13 and they said well no one's going to see it anyway but we'll we'll put them on just so you have the tops at least you know that they might see the tops and I clumped in there and uh, there and I and they said okay they're all at breakfast and getting makeup so uh, we'll just do it with the uh, first AD <laughs> read <laughs> I was like you mean I'm not going to meet anyone <laughs> actually on the set I think we did two takes and they were like, great, that was wonderful. Enjoy the rest of your day. <laughs> <laughs> if they're going to take my makeup off, then <laughs> do it. See, I would have left the makeup on yeah. just to walk around like that. Yeah, 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 right. So you basically spent like three and a half hours doing makeup for essentially a 10-minute scene. That's right. Wow. That's right. That's the Star Trek experience, right? That was my first Star Trek experience, yes. So you returned then to Star Trek for Deep Space Nine, the season three episode Destiny, and you had a much meatier role this time around. You were Vedic Yarka, who was this wonderfully condescending Bajoran priest who was recently defrocked, who believes that there's a prophecy that's going to come true if Cisco helps the Cardassians on a certain scientific endeavor. Uh, and this episode is about biases and interpretation of facts and information, a, relevant, a, a topic that's very relevant today still. Uh, did the story resonate with you in any way when you first read the script? Yeah, and- you know, that one um, came at a time when I was in negotiations to do a, uh, an episode, uh, well, to do a, um, a TV series, um, and we were having a hard time with, you know, um, all this stuff. And I got this script. 
and I thought, oh, this is going to, you know, Star Trek, uh, the, um, the show hadn't aired yet. And when I read the script and the concept and all that, I thought, oh, my goodness me, this is, this is going to be huge. I just loved it. I loved the concept, and I just really wanted to be a part of such a great character, you know. And, and, and so, it, to me, it was so typically Star Trek, the, like the old Star Trek, you know, um, in, in, in terms of how they're getting their message across. And I, I, I loved it. I jumped at that opportunity. So how was the makeup process different? Because this time around, you know, you don't have the giant Klingon forehead, but you still have the Bajoran nose piece and the Bajoran priest outfit, uh, the Vedic outfit. So how was the makeup process different? Yes, I, I loved it. I, I loved the, the costume and I loved the earring uh, and the nose was so easy, you know, uh, that, that was uh, that was an easy one. <laughs> now you got to share... Part. You got to spend a lot of time in this episode with Avery Brooks and Nana Visitor. Uh, just tell me a little bit about working with those two. You know, I, I love those two. They have such great chemistry together, and I've heard great things about roles with them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, what I remember about that, it, it was Nana was so, both of them actually, they were just so professional. We covered a lot of material. I remember being quite surprised at how quickly we went through pages and pages of dialogue. So there wasn't a lot of time to, to chit-chat, you know. Uh, uh, a lot of it was we were going. Um, and, and it was very smooth, very, very professional, shall we say, you know. We, would, we were pulling close on 16-hour days. And it were long days. And, and, uh, and I, was, I really... That gave me a sense of how difficult this job can be for someone who's doing this week after week after week, you know, uh, pulling that kind of load. Um, it's, uh, you know. So how did you approach this role of Vedic Yarka? Did you call on some real-life experience from your time about going to school with Jesuits, priests? Uh, or was, was there something else? Like, how did you create the role of Vedic Yarka and make it interesting for yourself? I, I I think a lot. Yes, I think the Jesuits perhaps had a lot to do with it. I'd also played, you know, a lot of priests, uh, Friar Lawrence for one, you know, and Romeo and Juliet, and so, uh, so priests. You know, when when you're when you're a character man, bald priests and doctors uh, are really good ones. <laughs> you, know, you get to play a lot of those. Um, so th- that. That part of it was was easy, and really, you know, for me, honestly, I I I find that the preparation for a role so much it's 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 exploration, you know. Uh, a director once, and if I can, I think, well, my own horn here. Um, a director once, <laughs> uh, you know, you're like a you're like a curator. You go and you brush away all the sand from around the roll. And then we see the skeleton. And then you add from there. And I thought, oh, what, what a nice, <laughs> nice description of my work method. You know, <laughs> I, I'd never really thought of it that way. Um, but I think that does kind of 
say what what um, what you want to do with a role is strip away and get to the root. What is at the bottom of this? And here's a man, and if I can remember, you know, the, 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 the plot correctly, but he believed, sincerely believed he was seeing all the signs of uh, what was going to come. And it was on him to convince the rest of the, the starch, you know, the the fleet to heed his warning. Yep. Or it could come to catastrophic ends, you know. So it's very easy to to now put yourself in a position where it's easy to grasp that. It it doesn't take, you know, in realistic terms, how you want to get your point across and they're not getting it. And And then to look them in the eye and Get your point across, no matter what it takes, you know, and, and just think about that, uh, actions and objectives, you know. Um, so a lot of my work uh, as preparation is stuff that I would do and then throw out once I get to the set and I'm looking the actors in the eye. Um, I, if I may give you a, a very vivid example of this and going back to the beast that <laughs> the movie that I'm determined to plug. <laughs> <laughs> Check out the beast of war today. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> but th- th- I remember when I auditioned for that, uh, there was a moment when I, spoiler alert, uh, confront uh, George Zunza, wonderful, wonderful actor. Um, and I played it one way when I was at the audition and when I was actually looking him in the eye, uh, it was a whole different take and so much better, you know, because all that bravado that I could show at an audition when I'm just looking at, you know, no one basically on the other end, uh, it's easy to conjure up. But when you're actually looking at someone in the eye, you know, eyeball to eyeball, and you put yourself in that position in the scene and, and, and you know that you could lose your life. Now, now go ahead and say the line. <laughs> you know? <laughs> you know, does that make any, any yeah. sense? Yeah, it's a good way to put it. So this episode that you did was directed by Les Lando. And oddly enough, he was also the director who would have directed your TNG appearance. But again, we already heard about what happened there. But uh, what do you remember yeah, about yeah. working with Les? Was this your first time working with him? Yes, yes, it was, and and I really enjoyed it. And um, uh, we did actually get to hang out a little bit, um, and I can't remember anything specific other than really enjoying working with him. He was very gentle and and. And he was uh, very appreciative, so it's, it's, it's you know, uh, there's no, um, it's very easy for an actor to get along with someone who's, who, who, who likes your take and, and, and uh, likes what you're doing, you know, um, makes it very pleasant. Uh, that's not to say, I, 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 I like, I do like being challenged, though, as, as, as uh, if a director were to come and say, look. Uh, that's not where I want to go at all. I want, 
I want you to think about this. Go there. You know, I said, sure. Uh, I kind of, I like that too. But, um, but I just remember the, the experience with Les just being very, very pleasant and very, um, the whole, the whole, um, shoot actually. Um, and on Enterprise, speaking of directors, I worked with LeVar Burton. Yeah. Yeah. Let's go ahead and jump into Enterprise. In fact, now that was your last appearance yeah. in the Star Trek franchise. You were in the episode from the first season called Terra Nova and you played a uh, yeah, yeah. who was a descendant of some lost colonists from earth who are now living underground, unaware that they're humans. Uh, it's a pretty interesting episode. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. And that was directed by LeVar Burton. Yes. Yes. And, uh, the, uh, Mary Carver who played my mother was LeVar's acting teacher in, uh, at, uh, USC. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. basically, you've got and the student it, directing the teacher now. Yeah, right. It was, it was wonderful. And I'd worked with um, uh, Scott Bakula on um, uh, TV series uh, prior to that as well. I forget what it was, but so, so we'd worked together. Um, and it's, it's, it's nice. And, and, uh, you know, that cast, uh, John Billingsley is a dear friend today, uh, as well. And, uh, Dominic Keating, I, I got along very well. And we, we still sort of, uh, keep in touch. So yeah, yeah, it's nice, uh, that, that world, the, uh, sci-fi world is, uh, attracts some wonderful people, um, and and I and I was very lucky and privileged to be a part of that world. I, I really enjoyed, um, and I also enjoyed stretching my imagination. You know, yeah. All your Star Trek appearances, even in particular, they're all very different from each other. Uh, ah, yeah, yes, yes. Well, very different roles, aren't they? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and they all present, I imagine, different challenges to you as an actor, because you know, one day you're doing a Klingon, the next day you're doing a priest, and then you're doing um, a subterranean uh, cave dweller, basically. <laughs> Uh, yeah, yeah. I think that was the one I, I enjoyed most, the the Terra Nova, the, the subterranean, because he, <laughs> I love the sense of humor of, you know, just absolutely hating these humans, only <laughs> to come to find out, hello, I'm human too. <laughs> I'm Classic Star Trek. And so the makeup here, too, it's it's very interesting because, uh, you know, we were talking about before the makeup. Uh, this was like something that had never been done before, right? How did the crew go about creating the the underground cave dwellers? Well, the, the, um, I remember sitting in there uh, with Mary while they played with makeup. Um, we came in a day early and uh, they were played with this, that, and the other thing, and then finally settled on this. Yeah, that, 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 that was sort of a... Like I, like I was alluding to earlier, the makeup was weird. Um, and I, you know, I think not having done it before, it was, you don't know what the problems are until you actually go through a day of shooting, you know, and get to refine it. And, and they did. Uh, over the course of that episode, they sprayed it down so that it didn't run quite so much and um, kept its form like that. Kept the color. I remember the colors uh, were difficult to maintain. So having been on three different Star Trek shows, three different franchises, uh, what can you tell us about the differences between the environments on each of those sets? 
they were all, uh, I remember, uh, I think uh, the upstairs on all those sets being consistent had a lot to do with the consistency that I felt on all three sets. That it, there was a, a, a very, very strong attention to, uh, to the script. You know, you do not deviate, um, not not punctuation or or letters, you know, um, and uh, obviously you you there is a sense of tradition on and I think enterprise less so because it hadn't yet been established in terms of tradition in terms of the uh, the the framework of the story the the world that they're inhabiting, you know, uh, that was a little looser than. Uh, Deep Space Nine and uh, Next Generation, where I felt that they were, and not being a, a, a diehard Trekkie, I, 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 I wasn't quite sure uh, of my footing sometimes, you know, uh, pronunciation of something or whatever, you know, or what what is that alluding to, you know. Um, and uh, sometimes you don't want to ask because you don't want to sound foolish, but you know, <laughs> sometimes you just have to. Um, but Enterprise, there was less less of that uh, because, it, like I say, they were still discovering and, and creating that world, which was closer to our time, so yeah. it was easier, you know. So after Enterprise, did you audition for any roles in any other Star Trek shows? No, that was it. I don't, and they said I never auditioned for Voyager, so that was it. I oh, see. That would have been fun to have you on Voyager too. That's unfortunate. Yeah. Wasn't there something about Voyager that you could, if you'd done one, you couldn't do the other? That you were, you would be on the wrong side. I don't know. That... From what I've heard. Um, Basically, if you're an alien, you can get recast into different shows, but the minute you show your human face, basically, that's when they don't want to deal yeah. with you again. Yeah, yeah. And and I know with Next Generation, uh, there was a consideration that I I was a little too close to uh, Patrick Stewart in terms of, you know, the bald head and the timbre of my voice and something. that, that, that um, I remember that being an issue on one of the roles. That I went out for. That, that's interesting because we've heard something similar with another actor we spoke to a few episodes back, uh, Carl Held, who uh, he was in the original series and he had worked a lot with Shatner. They both had similar looks. Um, and because of that, basically, when they filmed the episode where Carl and Shatner are together, most of the time, Shatner, in terms of the blocking, he's always in front of Carl Held and practically like blocking most of his face in a lot of those shots. So it's kind of interesting. Uh, it's, just, it's just a Hollywood thing, I guess. Uh, uh, interesting. Yeah. What they say is true you know it has not the fact that you didn't get the part has very little to do with what you did at the audition but i know actors we tend to beat ourselves up so much you know it's like oh if only i'd done that or you know and blah, 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 and has nothing to do with anything so outside of Star Trek, of course, you've continued to do many, many things. Uh, there's tons of things we could talk about. I mean, even The Mummy alone, I feel like that's just a whole episode for itself. But uh, I want to yeah. talk to you about 
one of your comedy roles. And I think this is probably the one that people might remember you the most for. Uh, and that was when you were in Mr. Deeds and you got to sing Ground Control to Major Tom with Adam Sandler. That must have been just a blast to work on with that crew and that cast. The hardest part of that show was trying to keep a straight face. <laughs> and, 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 and actually both literally and figuratively, but, but it, I did have to keep a straight face in order to keep that beard on. There's a story behind that. So I'd just come off, actually I'm still on the tail end of uh, Planet of the Apes, I think. Yes, right. When they, were, when, they were, when they cast me, we were just wrapping Planet of the Apes where I, had, I was shaved completely. Right? And they said, um, we really want to use him in this role. Uh, and um, we want his beard to be out as, as bushy as, as possible. And uh, I, I said, well, I'll, I'll do my best. <laughs> but, you know, there's, well, there's only so much I can do. Uh, and there wasn't enough time for them for me to really grow it out. Well, that's the most difficult part to add on. So I had these huge bushy mutton chops with the chin shaved. Yep. And every day we put that on. Um, so it, eating and excessive laughing were not allowed <laughs> for me. But it, yeah, it, it, that, that was such a blast. I, uh, and, and I mean, we, we got to do... Just such cool stuff. Like we shot hoops in Madison Square Garden one day. Yeah. You know? uh, um, oh, I, I, yeah. And John Turturro, um, Peter Gallagher. Great, great cast. You know, um, fun. And Adam is just. I can't say enough good things about him. Um, I just, um, you know, he what. He's just a good guy, you know. He's he he genuinely he's he's very empathetic. I think I think and I think that's what what I like about his acting and and being with him is uh, I I tell you a little story. One day we're uh, in my trailer and uh, Malcolm do and uh, Adam goes. Anderson, <laughs> come in. Get your ass out of here. And he walks around. I said, where are you going? He said, just come with me. And we go into his trailer, and, and there are a bunch of kids, uh, teenagers, and clearly they were all cancer patients. Um, and they were from Make-A-Wish Foundation. Ah. And, uh, you know, um, they were, most of them were bald, you know. And as he walks in, he goes, hey, Baldy. They just sort of, it's a moment of kind of horror, you know. He goes, <laughs> I want you to meet my other Baldy friend here. <laughs> and he points to me, you know. <laughs> and he just, and, and, you know, he, he, um, he, he, he's so good with people that he, yeah, I don't know. I, I just love that man. I love a great heart and he's funny i think he's hysterical and i would be remiss today if we didn't talk about this one other comedic role that you had a little bit earlier before that role uh, and that was in encino man i think this might be like one of your most quotable lines maybe you know where i'm going with this already uh wheezing the juice what can you tell us about wheezing the juice with brendan fraser and Polly shore you know uh i was 
going to ask you not to bring it up. And then I thought of it because I fought that stereotype for all my career, mm, ever yeah. since I was, uh, I can remember. Um, and uh, and I, I went out for that. Uh, I was very early in my, uh, when I'd just come to LA and I was, I'd start doing some TV work and I kept bugging my agents to get me out on films. I said, I, said, I, you know, I think my forte is really film rather than TV. And, uh, she said, okay, here's, you know, there's this casting director. She casts a lot. Um, she casts a lot of film. Uh, they're looking for, you know, this Indian Seven Eleven guy. And I was like, no, and they were like, no, no, wait. They're, they want someone with an improv, improv background and all this. And, and I did have a strong improv background. So I, I said, okay, I mean, just go show your face. You know, you, you probably won't get it because as far as his words, he said, you don't look Indian enough. You know, probably get, you know, anyway. So I said, okay, I'll, I'll go out and do this. And, and I went in and ad-libbed and I, and I did the dialect and everything. And I was spoofing it really, you know? Um, and, the more they laughed, the broader I got, and you know, um, and then I got the offer, and 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 I remember my reaction was, oh shit, <laughs> you know, <laughs> Should I I can't do that, um, and they were like, mm, you know, now what am I going to say at that point, you know? But I thought about it a lot, and I I really regretted doing that um, and I've, I've thought about that too I've been confronted with this a lot okay uh, is is something funny only because of the accent if in other words if you take that accent away and do exactly what everything else is it still funny very true and when I was defending myself I would say what actually got the laugh was not the accent, but it was this man who clearly doesn't speak uh, Encino speak, <laughs> a Polly Shore speak, you know, uh, does the yoo-hoos. That was actually what made it funny, that he wasn't, you know, that he was really angry and just repeats exactly what he heard, you know? Yeah. No, you know what I mean, yeah, so. As I was doing this interview, too, I was thinking to myself whether or not I actually did want to ask you that question about that, because it is a super negative stereotype. And, you know, looking through your career and even watching you on TV, as I've seen you through different shows, you know, so many times you're playing these stereotypical characters. I know it's got to be tough, especially for you. Um, so, you know, my question to you is, how do you balance an accurate portrayal of a human being versus a negative portrayal of a stereotype? Yeah, uh, it's like I, I, with, with comedy, I'd say that is one. You know, uh, that, that, that to me is the yardstick. And I had to think about this a, a lot because I was confronted with it a lot. Yeah. Um, I did the same thing on Martin. Now, the thing about it is this guy is a 7-Eleven clerk. A lot of the clerks that I saw at 7-Elevens did have very broad accents, you know. Now, how am I going to play that and realistically and, and come across sounding like a foreign diplomat instead of a 7-Eleven clip. You know what I mean? Yeah. So 
you have to be realistic on, on the one hand. Um, secondly, you know, I was one of three, well, there were, there were literally three Indian actors in Hollywood of my age that, you know, we, we, we didn't have the opportunities that we see today on TV with, you know, Indian doctors, Indian roles, and, you know, Indian lawyers, young kids speaking without dialects, you know, the, the first generation of Indians. It was the, the immigrant Indians, that there were no roles being written. Tons of roles as terrorist kind of guys, which I, that's where I drew the line in the sand, mm. you know? And, and it's, again, picking your battles. Because if you, as an actor um, of, of my ilk, you know, a, a character actor, not a name draw, you you can't be laying down, you know, the law and saying, no, I won't play that and I won't play this and I won't play that. Uh, although I tried, you know. I, there was a time when I, I actually pulled out of a, show, uh, of a shoot during the shoot because they changed the script. And, uh, and, and it suddenly became very offensive to me and, and I had to bow out. It was a very, very difficult moment in my career. I mean, I feel like things have started to change, but I mean, you're going to be the better judge of that. I mean, do you think that things have gotten better in at least the past decade? Infinitely, infinitely. And I think they got worse because in, in, in my early days, there were no real Indian roles, you know. Uh, but then when the when those when I say Indian, I'm talking let, let's say ethnic roles, okay? Because I, I played a variety of those ethnic characters. I wasn't confined to Indian. Yeah, we could say like um, South Asian or Middle Eastern uh, types characters, I guess. Yeah, yeah. And so among those uh, 24 that show, uh, I I turned that one down. I, I don't know a number of times um, until they stopped calling me. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, then I, I started to become known as being difficult or, you know, who does he think he is? Uh, uh, someone's, um, what you know, but I, I just, I, 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 when I didn't agree with the, with the morality of what we were portraying and how we were depicting, uh, a type of people, um, of whole race, you know, not just 7-Eleven clerks. I don't mean to denigrate 7-Eleven clerks, but, you know, when it's that specific, you know, uh, okay, you, you can be a little stereotypical. But when you're talking about a whole race of people, mm-mm, no, that's uh, just pushing it to, you know, that that's racism. Yeah. That's, that's you know, uh, bigotry. And it's it's not surprising to me to hear that, like, you'd be defending yourself and then you'd be labeled as being a troublemaker in Hollywood. Uh, it's unfortunate that's what you had to deal with, but I'm glad, that you, did. I'm glad that you were able to defend yourself and endure. I'm used to hearing no, you know. Uh, they, 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 at first, they think it's a negotiation tactic, and then when they realize it's not, then, then they get mad. And it's not good to anger Hollywood when mm. <laughs> you're a little guy. Uh, you know, I I uh, I don't mean to denigrate Hollywood. It's given me um, a wonderful life, and I have very very much to be thankful for. And I'm enjoying that right now as I'm looking out over this uh, beautiful landscape in Portland. 
So let's talk about something else you're working on these days, one of your more current projects. You're working on a documentary now called The Milk of Human Kindness. This is a crowdsourced documentary. It's very interesting. Uh, can you tell our listeners today what this doc is all about? In a word, kindness. But uh, it sounds like such a simplistic thing, a um, simple concept. And my my hope was to bring some light on the subject and show just how elusive it actually is. Because no matter who you ask, you know, I mean, I think with the odd exception, someone says, no, 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 I, I don't believe in kindness. But everyone, you know, yeah, yeah, I believe in kindness. I'm all about kindness. Yeah. And I had one person go, oh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm all about kindness. You know, all lives matter. <laughs> and that to me just sums it up. You know, <laughs> as he was saying, all lives matter. It's like, how much more unkind could you be? <laughs> you know, as you was saying. So that's, uh, I guess, in a nutshell, what I'm trying to do. Uh, to be honest, it is not going well. And I'm struggling with it because I'm, I'm able to scratch the surface with the crowdsourcing method that I was hoping to do. And when we say crowdsourcing, can you actually explain to our listeners uh, what what we're doing with crowdsourcing? Yes, it's not crowdfunding, not to be confused with crowdfunding at all. Uh, it, by source, I mean uh, I'm asking you for your input, your your submission, your video submission. Um, and I'm, I, w- I had three basic, and I wanted to get you know everyone's story. It started out, I was actually doing it uh, when I left Hollywood in uh, 2016. Uh, I was in an RV toured the United States in my RV, and I was actually meeting people and interviewing people as as I went along. And uh, then my health issues uh, took over, and I had to get surgery, so that put an end to that. And then I, I didn't want to let it go. Uh, so I came up with this idea about crowdsourcing. But if I can't go to the mountain, the mountain must come to me. Yeah, I think what I'm lacking there is the probative value of an interview, you know, is to get beyond the scripted response um, and get something that's and more challenging than three basic questions about kindness. So I'm still, you know, um, I'm still um, struggling with that, and I, but I'm not, I'm not letting go. Um, I have, in fact, uh, bridged one big obstacle uh, on my Facebook. I was, I've always stayed away from religion and politics. But um, I, not a long story, but I ended up doing a series after I'd left Hollywood um, on on Jesus, the life of Jesus, and I played Nicodemus. Yeah, that's the uh, Chosen, yes. right? Yes, yes. And that's become a very, uh, very, very strong sort of following among the uh, evangelical community. And it's... Uh, sort of put me and now now 
my fan base is sort of split, if you will. You know, uh, a lot of many of the the, the the chosen fan base only know me from the chosen, oh. um, <laughs> and uh, and they're very, you know, they're they're much more dogged about this than uh, than the sci-fi fan base, you know. Uh, there and so I, to, to to talk about politics and what's going on uh, is is disturbing to a lot of them. But I've decided I you know I'm not going to pull my punches just because I played a role. You know. Yeah, well, I've yeah. found that most uh, folks in the Star Trek fandom and the Star Trek community have been. Besides being fairly progressive, uh, you know, I think they're very receptive. This might be a great thing for a lot of Star Trek fans to to hear about and possibly submit to your doc. How can our listeners be part of this documentary? Yes, the easiest way is if you go to my uh, Facebook page. There's, there's a link up there, uh, and and you just click on the link, you get all the details, and it's it's really simple. Essentially, what what uh, it would take is a cell phone or. Um, a, a, your tablet or whatever, and just record yourself. But I'm, I, I want to revamp those questions because I don't think that, I think the onus is on me. You know, I've got to fix that in order to get a better response out of people and to get to the heart of what they really believe. Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, that's kind of the challenge of documentary filmmaking. You know, that's what I do outside of this right here. Uh, and it's an it's an yeah, evolving process. Yeah. You kind of have to learn as you go. And it's not really up to you what the documentary is going to be about or how it's going to happen. It's kind of up to the documentary right. to do itself. Yes, yes. But, but to get to the heart of the issue is kind of up to the documentarian, isn't it? To, yes. To poke and to prod and to... to follow leads uh, or whatever. Ask the uncomfortable questions. Um, Yeah, yeah, yeah. And pick up on on things that you hear at the moment and say, well, what do you mean by that? Or how do you feel about this? You just said that. So, you know, uh, not that we're trying to trip them up, but we're trying to get to the the real meat of the issue. Um, Yeah, I think that's what filmmakers mean when they say they're looking for the truth. Yes. And that is what, you know, I was talking to someone about acting, and I said, uh, it's the truth. You, you have to look for the truth. And this, what do you mean? Because it's all a lie anyway. And I was like, yes. But once you get past that lie, <laughs> then it has to be the absolute truth. <laughs> you, <know? laughs> you have to get beyond the lie that you're not really that person. <laughs> but after that, you must tell the truth. I said that about someone, um, and I said, that woman doesn't know how to lie on or off stage. Mm. <laughs> and that to me is a supreme compliment. And I love working with, I love being with people who can't lie. <laughs> you know. So for any of our listeners who want to submit, you could check out Eric's social media pages or go to stubatoeproductions.com and all the information is going to be there so that you can submit and be part of this doc. Thank you so much for doing that, Matthew. You did it better than I did. <laughs> <laughs> I've had a lot of practice with that kind of stuff. Yes, you do. So, Eric, what is the best thing about being a part of the Star Trek universe? Mm, uh, well, we're the fan base, right? I would say so. I love I love going to the conventions. Um, it's really a 
become a very enjoyable, sometimes exhausting, because I just love talking to the fans, you know? You meet all kinds of people from all walks of life, but the common thread is their their imaginations are well-developed, shall we say, um, open, uh, receptive. And that tells you something about the mind of those people. And those people, I hate to say that, but, you know, um, the fan base. I, I find it true that I don't come across a lot of close-minded people. And I find you know, a lot of um, um, disabled in one way or another that, you know, people who have been unable to, you know, for some physical disability, that they've been confined to home and watching TV and, and, and have just been sucked into the sci-fi world, you know, and that, that, that is such a um, wonderful gift, isn't it? And, yeah. and, and it's something that, that I, as an actor, I take, very, and that's why I say truth, you know, you owe the fans that you owe them that tell the truth when you're up there as much as, you know, Coming back to the beast, as much as I would like to have been all bravado and, you know, <laughs> matinee idol, uh, I was not. <laughs> you know? and it would, that would have been a lie. Well, you know, it, just, it kind of reminds me of that famous quote from Captain Picard on Star Trek Next Generation, where he says the first duty of every Starfleet officer is to the truth. So I think that's why it's so ingrained huh. in Trekkies. Huh. Huh. Interesting. Yeah. I think that should be... Uh, the mantra here in America. <laughs> if only. That's the truth. Yeah. Eric, thank you so much for being so incredibly generous with your time today, all of your stories, all your insight and your experiences. Uh, we had a lot of fun chatting today. I hope you did too. It's been my pleasure. Thank you. And for folks, once again, who want to check out the documentary that you're working on, The Milk of Human Kindness, head to stubatoeproductions.com. All the information is going to be there. It's a real great doc, so I wish you much success with that. And again, thank you so much. I, I could definitely see your passion for the fans here, and uh, I look forward to hopefully meeting you one day at a convention. Post-coronavirus. Absolutely. Sure. <laughs> right, thank you so much, Eric. Appreciate your time. It was my pleasure. Thank you. That was our discussion with Mr. Eric Avari, who is absolutely one of those actors that deserves more acclaim and notoriety than he receives. I can't thank him enough for joining us today, and I wish him much success with his documentary. And for you listeners out there, do make sure you check out stubatoeproductions.com to learn more about the doc and to learn how you can participate. Trek fans are one of the best fandoms I've ever been a part of, so let's go ahead and help out a Trek alumni and make his dream become a reality, and even better, show the world what Trekkies are truly made of. The character of Vedic Yarka was named after one of David S. Cohen's professors at SUNY Albany, Jarka Burian. Burian was an authority on Czechoslovakian theater, and was heralded as the author of the most definitive book on the subject. Cohen, who wrote this episode, also did a rewrite on the DS9 episode Crossover, which he was uncredited for. But as for this episode, Destiny, the episode was originally meant to be a little bit more about Starfleet trying to remove Sisko from his position of power with the Starfleet brass being unhappy about Sisko being considered an emissary while also being in charge of a space station. It would have had some notes similar to Heart of Darkness, but ultimately the story evolved more into what it became that we saw aired, which also included the parallels to the Cold War, which is the reason behind Galora and Ulani being a part of this episode, but those two characters are going to be a story for another day. 
Thank you again for listening to this week's episode of Trek Untold. Please make sure you follow us on social media to see all of our memes and daily guest updates. And who knows what else, because you never know what pops up on our pages. All you have to do is look for Trek Untold on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We'd love to hear from you and hear what you think about this week's episode. If you'd like to support this podcast, check out patreon.com slash trekuntold to learn how you can keep our ship operating at full power. You can also check out some of our merchandise at teespring.com slash stores slash trekuntold. That's T-E-E spring.com. That includes shirts, stickers, mugs, phone cases, and a whole lot more. But most importantly, if you haven't already, please subscribe to this show and give us a review and rating on iTunes or wherever you listen to it. If you enjoy what we do here every week on this show, please give us a five-star rating and review. It's the best way to make new listeners discover this podcast and help us grow. Once again, I'd like to thank our sponsor, Triple Fiction Productions. If you'd like to send us some feedback, suggest a guest, would like to be booked on the show, or are interested in sponsoring us, email me at trekuntold at gmail.com. Once again, this has been Trek Untold. I'm Matthew Kaplowitz, and until next time, fortune favors the bold. <laughs>